0: Good morning, Chinese Grace Bible Church. I would like to begin by extending greetings on behalf of my local church out in Louisville, Kentucky, Cedar Creek Baptist Church. Uh, There are a number of folks there who know that I am here preaching this morning. They've been praying for me. They've been praying for you this past week, and uh, so I bring greetings to you from them As always, it is a joy to be here with you. I want to thank the pastors for giving me this opportunity to preach, and I want to thank this church for your constant support throughout these last several years that I've been uh, pursuing seminary studies. I am both grateful for Chinese grace and tremendously proud to call CG my home church. If you guys have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And our focus this morning is going to be on verses 12 through 14. But I want to briefly orient us by beginning in verse 9. Colossians chapter 1. And here we find the Apostle Paul writing to a group of Christians whom he had actually never met before in person. He had learned of their salvation from afar. He had heard of their faith in Jesus, their love for the saints, and their hope laid up in heaven. And this is why he writes in verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And what does Paul ask for in his prayers? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding then Paul goes on in verse 10 to lay out the purpose behind this request. He says in verse 10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to Him. This is the central emphasis of Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 14, that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of and fully pleasing to the Lord. And then from the rest of verse 10 all the way down to verse 12, Paul proceeds to lay out four concrete ways in which he wants the Colossians to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Firstly, in verse 10, by bearing fruit in every good work. Secondly, verse 10 again, by increasing in the knowledge of God. Thirdly, in verse 11, by being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And then lastly, verse 12, by giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And it is this fourth and final example that we will be unpacking today. Uh, We walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord when we walk in gratitude before the Father. So let's read our text for this morning, and then I'm going to open us in prayer. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14 giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask now that you would take your word and that you would use it to shape And fashion us more into the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in this time. We commit this time into your hands. We pray that you would receive all the glory and honor. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. For those of you who may not know, I consider myself to be what some might describe as a cinemophile. In other words, I am a lover of cinema. I love movies. I love to watch movies, analyze movies, talk about movies, review movies, and hands down, my favorite movie of this year so far is a little film you might have heard of called Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun Maverick, the legacy sequel to the late Tony Scott's classic 1986 film, Top Gun. Now, I know quite a few people who saw Top Gun Maverick without ever having watched the original film. And they had an absolute blast in the theaters. But for those of us who have seen the original Top Gun, I'm willing to bet that when we went to watch Top Gun Maverick, that background familiarity enabled us to draw out even deeper layers of nostalgia and emotional payoff from the film. And ultimately, it resulted in a a far more richly satisfying and rewarding theatrical experience. And the same goes for the Bible. You see, oftentimes when we come to our Bibles, what we encounter in later parts of Scripture will either refer or allude back to earlier parts of Scripture and build upon those portions of Scripture, So in books like Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, we are introduced to characters, events, themes, imagery, and particular language that will then go on to shape and influence later books of the Bible, books such as Paul's letter to the Colossians. Thus, the background familiarity we have with earlier portions of Scripture helps to enrich and deepen our understanding and appreciation for what comes later. And this is precisely why I requested that our scripture reading this morning be from Exodus chapter 6. If you would turn there with me to Exodus chapter 6, what we find in Exodus 6 verses 2 through 8 is that God is making a series of promises to Israel. Promises which he will then carry out in the following chapters. And among these promises, look at what God says in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts. Here in verse 6, God promises deliverance, he says, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and he promises redemption, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Deliverance and redemption. Deliverance and redemption. Now drop down to verse 8, and this is what God promises in verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So after delivering and redeeming his people, God is going to then bring them into the promised land and grant that land to them as a possession. Or another way to render that word in the original language is as an inheritance, as an inheritance. Thus, what we find in these verses is deliverance, redemption, and an inheritance, now, look again at what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. He says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, in Colossians, we find the same three key terms an inheritance, verse 12, deliverance, verse 13, and redemption, verse 14. In fact, one scholar has noted that the use of these three terms in close combination with one another only occurs in two places in the Bible Colossians chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 6. So, Paul has effectively reached back into the Old Testament drawn from the language of Exodus 6, and incorporated it into his letter to the Colossians. And it's as if he is saying that through Christ, God has brought about a new Exodus, one that far surpasses what we find in the Old Testament. Not a physical Exodus out of Egyptian enslavement, but rather a spiritual Exodus in which we are redeemed and forgiven of our sins in which we are delivered from the domain of darkness, in which we are brought not into a geographical strip of land along the Mediterranean coast, but into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, an everlasting kingdom of light granted to us as an inheritance. And this greater exodus which Christ has enacted, this, Paul says, is the basis for our gratitude. We are to give thanks to the Father, because in Christ, we are beneficiaries of an even greater exodus. In Christ, we now enjoy an inheritance. In Christ, we have experienced deliverance, and in Christ, we have received redemption. And what I want to do for the rest of this sermon is take time to dwell upon these three salvation realities. My hope is that as we allow these truths to soak into our hearts and water our souls, we would produce the fruit of gratitude for Christ's greater exodus work. Now, just as a preface, my my approach here is going to be a little unorthodox. I intend to begin at the end of our text. And we're going to start by firstly considering redemption in verse 14. Then we're going to work our way backwards and consider, secondly, our deliverance in verse 13. Then we're going to conclude with verse 12 and our inheritance. And I'm not doing this because I'm trying to be novel or creative. I actually think that by working backwards, we will be able to better follow and trace Paul's line of reasoning. Uh, The logical flow of this passage is such that, that verse 12 is actually dependent on verse 13. And verse 13, in turn, hinges on verse 14. So ultimately, verse 14 is the foundation upon which verses 13 and 12 are built. So let's begin there. Verse 14, Paul says, in whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Before any of us can enjoy the benefits of salvation, laid out in verses 12 and 13, before we are delivered from the domain of darkness and qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints, Paul's saying that a redemption price must first be paid. You see, the word redemption is a term often used in the marketplace, and it highlights the fact that in order for one to acquire a particular good— A necessary payment must first be made. And in the case of this verse, that payment is the very cost required in order to procure forgiveness for sins. In other words, the price of our redemption is the debt that we have accrued because of the guilt of our sin. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we are all sinners guilty of failing to wholly love, trust, and obey God. With hearts of stone, we have all fallen short of God's glory. We have gone astray like sheep. We have acted unfaithfully like an adulterous spouse, whether it be with the deeds we have carried out or the words we have spoken or the thoughts we have entertained or the idols we have chosen to set our affections on. There is not a single person here today who is able to stand righteous before God on the basis of his or her own merit. But it's not simply that we are all sinners. It's that our sin has accumulated a debt, and that debt demands payment. One pastor has said that the severity of a transgression is measured in proportion to the value of the object transgressed. For instance, if I were to have a cup of coffee in my hands and I spilt it on a beat-up, raggedy old rug, the debt accumulated by that spill would probably be quite small because that rug is of minimal value. But if I were to spill that same cup of coffee on an imported, handmade, antique Persian rug, the debt of my blunder would be far more costly You see, when we sin, we aren't just sinning against another person or a group of people. We are sinning against God, the creator and king of the universe, whose value and worth and glory and beauty and majesty are of infinite measure, which would mean that the debt of our sin is an infinite debt. And yet Paul tells us here in Colossians 1:14 that this infinite price of our redemption has by some miracle been provided for in Christ. And the question is how? How has Jesus paid off the unpayable? Paul gives us the answer just a page over in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says here, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And how has he done this? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's our answer. The cross of Calvary, that is where Redemption was accomplished. That is where our impossibly high debt of sin was paid. It was nailed to the cross. We are now able to receive redemption, the forgiveness of sins, because the only one who never sinned bore our sins in his body on the tree. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his Grace, Our infinite, incalculable debt of sin has been paid in full, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For those of you here who are trusting today in the shed blood of Jesus, let that, let that sink in. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. How can we not be filled with gratitude to the Father when he has freely given us this costly gift of redemption, the complete forgiveness of even our sin's most crimson stains? Now, if you are here and you are not a Christian, then the most loving thing I could do from this pulpit is let you know that you have an outstanding debt of sin that is yet to be paid. And it must be paid one way or another. Either you can place your full faith in the free offer of redemption, which Christ has purchased at the cost of his own blood, or you can reject Jesus and live how you choose to live. And one day, you are going to enter into the everlasting torment of hell where you yourself will spend an eternity paying off this never-ending debt. And I pray that the latter would not be the fate of anyone here this morning. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for it is he alone in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Point number two, our deliverance. Paul says in verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Returning to the idea of the marketplace, once an, idea has, uh, once an item has been purchased and its redemption price paid in full, what's the next thing that happens? Naturally, a change of ownership takes place, right? Whatever has been redeemed is now transferred from one domain of ownership to another. That's what Paul is getting at in verse 13. He says that as a result of Christ's shed blood on the cross, not only do we receive redemption, but we also experience deliverance. To put it another way, in verse 14, Paul's emphasis is on how we are forgiven of sin's debt and penalty. Conversely, in verse 13, Paul's emphasis is on how we are freed from sin's dominion and power. We are forgiven of sin's debt and penalty. We are also freed from sin's dominion and power. You see, the Bible tells us that at one time, we all were living under the domain of darkness. We were spiritually blind. We were enslaved to sin. We were ruled by Satan himself. And Paul explains it like this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But here in Colossians 1.13, Paul reminds us that because of Christ's greater exodus, we have been delivered and transferred from one way of life and from one master to a completely new way of life under the perfect kingship of and loving reign of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Through Christ, we are now set free, not only forgiven of our sins, but freed from sin's dominion and power, free from Satan's tyrannical rule, free from bondage to sin, free from the vice grip of our flesh. We are free now to to walk in obedience, free to pursue holiness, free to die to ourselves daily, Free to resist temptation, free to stand firm against the schemes of the evil one. This is not to say that because we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, we will never again struggle with any sort of sin in this lifetime, but rather it is to say that our struggle with sin, ongoing though it may be, is no longer a hopeless or helpless struggle. And yet I wonder if, in a room this large, perhaps there is a brother or sister here this morning who feels paralyzed by the discouragement of ongoing sin. Maybe you're here and you just can't seem to shake off that one area of your life where defeat seems inevitable. Or maybe you just can't get past that one particular struggle that's been going on for years, which has become an entrenched and recurring pattern throughout the week. And as you read Paul's words in Colossians 1.13, part of you, a part of you wants to believe that what the apostle says here is true, that you have been delivered from the domain of darkness, that sin no longer has power over you. And yet, another part of you can't help but doubt. Not even God is able to deliver me from this pattern of sin. Not even God can rescue me out of these self-destructive habits. Not even God has the power to help me overcome this unbreakable addiction. Sure, I might enjoy victory for a short while, but... Defeat is only a matter of time. At the end of the day, this is all just a a pointless losing battle, an uphill climb. So why even bother? What's the use? If that is you, friend, I am here today to let you know that those words are lies from the pit of hell. If you are trusting in Christ today, and have experienced redemption, the forgiveness of your sins, then know this, a forgiven sin is a powerless sin. A forgiven sin has been emptied of any control it may have once had over you. Its hold on you is broken. That's why verse 13 is contingent upon verse 14. Our deliverance from the domain of darkness in verse 13 is grounded and rooted in verse 14. The reason we are able to experience freedom from sin's power and dominion is because we have first been forgiven of sin's penalty and debt. I love the words that the late Jerry Bridges writes in his book, Respectable Sins. He says this, quote, to the extent that I grasp in the depth of my being this great truth of God's forgiveness of my sins through Christ, I will be freed up to honestly and humbly face the particular manifestations of sin in my life. End quote. If you want to overcome your sin, it starts firstly by resting in the liberating Power of God's forgiving grace, trusting with humble confidence that, that if God is for us, who can be against us? If He did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Not only have we been redeemed, we have been delivered. Last point. Inheritance. Verse 12, Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. As we worked our way backwards through this text, we firstly considered redemption, the forgiveness of sins, verse 14. Next, we saw that as a result of Christ's debt paying work on the cross, we are also free from sin. We are delivered from the domain of darkness. Verse 13, what follows our redemption and deliverance? It doesn't end there. What comes next? What comes next is an inheritance. We are now qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, here's the question. What exactly is this inheritance? I think the key to answering this question is returning once again to the way in which Paul alludes back to Exodus 6. As we discussed earlier in Exodus 6, God promises to redeem and deliver Israel out of slavery to the Egyptians and to then bring Israel into the land of Canaan, which he is going to give them as an inheritance. Now, if that was the original Exodus, the prototype, as it were, and Christ has accomplished the greater exodus, redeeming us from sin, delivering us from the do- domain of darkness, then our inheritance is none other than the kingdom which we have now been brought into, the kingdom of Christ. Listen to how one commentator puts it. He writes this quote, "Just as Israel had been delivered from Egyptian slavery and have become saints, and then these tribes received a share of the inheritance in the promised land, so likewise has the church been delivered from a greater bondage than that of Egypt, and has now become qualified for a share in a greater inheritance of the saints in light. This inheritance is none other than the kingdom of the beloved Son. End quote. And I would propose that the final phrase in verse 12, when Paul says that, that we are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, that final phrase, in light, it's simply another way of referring to Christ's kingdom in verse 13. Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of light, which is why the apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, there are a lot of implications we could unpack here as we discuss this inheritance, but I want to highlight just one aspect of this kingdom inheritance of which we have been made heirs. And it is this, that this inheritance, this kingdom, is something we already possess in part but not yet in its fullness. We possess it in part, but not yet in its fullness. We, uh, we know that there, there is a, a present sense in which Christ's kingdom is already a current, ongoing reality. It is already broken into this world, and we are even now able to enjoy life in this kingdom of light. That's why we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit And we are no longer under sin's dominion. We are able to gather together as a body of believers to worship and to fellowship with one another. We are able, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.8, to walk as children of light. The kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light has broken in. These are evidences that Christ has inaugurated and transferred us over into his kingdom. So that as heirs among the saints, we currently enjoy its blessings. We enjoy life in the kingdom even now. But there is also a future expectation that Christ's kingdom, while presently here, will only be established in its fullness when Christ returns a second time. You see, at the moment, while we have tasted and seen tiny bits and and glimpses of the goodness of Christ's perfect kingdom... There's still a a tension that remains between these these slivers of glory and our ongoing experience of life in a fallen and broken world. Some of us right now, uh, some of us are currently grieving over the recent passing of, of a loved one. Others of us here, are at the moment shouldering the daily burden of having to helplessly watch as as a close friend or family member suffering through a painful struggle, perhaps suffering through a terminal illness. These are reminders that we live in a broken world. We exist in a broken created order, and things are not yet what they ought to be. So as I conclude, I want to leave us with a snapshot of how things will be when they finally are as they ought to be. If you turn over with me to Revelation chapter 21, this is what the Apostle John writes. I am making all things new. Drop down with me to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life." Chinese Grace Bible Church, this is our future inheritance among the saints, the ushering in of Christ's everlasting kingdom of light in all of its glory and splendor and matchless beauty. This is our hope, a hope which bridges the gap between our current experiences of life's brokenness and our deepest longings for Christ to come back and make all things new. Thanks be to the Father who, through Christ, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Thanks be to God for Christ's greater exodus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which you use your word to comfort us and to extend hope to us and to remind us of your great love and grace and mercy in Christ. And I pray that you would cause us to dwell on these truths and that they would lead us to rejoice and to give thanks all of our lives. We ask that you would continue to bless us as we worship you together. We ask this song in Christ's name. Amen.